This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Rob Tombrella, pastor at Grace Church. Come on in and take a seat, if you don't mind. If you have your Bible, either in printed form or electronic version, could you turn in your Bible to the book of Ecclesiastes? got a book form like me, uh, just go to Psalms and then just go to the right a couple of books and you'll find this wonderful book called Ecclesiastes. Funny name for a book. If you're new to the Bible, if you're a new Christian, uh, and it's a book of wisdom. It's kind of a book of, of Proverbs. It's written by a, a man who calls himself the preacher in chapter one of verse one. And we've been preaching through this book for several weeks and we are now to chapter six. Last week I shared a story about how I was sick a couple of weeks ago, and I do what a lot of you do when you're sick, you you try to watch a movie to cheer you up. So I started watching this movie to get cheered up, kind of one of those survival movies, and I'm always a sucker for those. And as I started to watch the movie, I started to get sicker and sicker and sicker because it was so depressing. It was one of the most depressing movies I've ever seen. And it made me go and read the reviews of this movie afterwards, which is what you're supposed to do before you watch a movie. I did it afterwards. And one guy wrote this, and I thought it was spot on. He goes, this movie starts off with the main character putting a gun to his head, having decided his life has no meaning or purpose. After that, the story starts getting depressing. I thought that was exactly what I experienced when I watched this show. It starts depressing, and then it got darker uh, from there. And what we saw last week from chapter 5, verses 8 through 20, is just like that movie. When we ignore the source of all meaning and the source of all purpose... Our story starts getting depressing. It starts bad and then it just gets way off course. When we lose sight of who God is and the fullness that he offers and the joy that he brings and we try to find joy in other places, when we try to become the main character of the story and try to move him off center stage and try to move him off to the margins, we play this game and joy starts to leave us and emptiness starts to flood into our lives. And and we blame God for the lack of joy in our life oftentimes. We saw last week that God is the source of joy. He's the source of all life. He's the source of all fullness. And if we take our eyes off of him, if we try to live life on our own and under our own authority, we will lose joy along in the process. Um, What I'm going to do is just read the first, well, read the 12 verses of chapter 6. That's where we're going to be. And, uh, and pray, and then we're going to get started. He says in chapter 6, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. 
For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wanderings of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Father, we ask in Jesus' name, by the power of your grace and the power of your love, Lord, that you would help us to see where joy comes from and where fullness of life comes from, that you would help us to escape and to run away from the emptiness that the world promises, that friends promise, that the, that the appetites of the world would not overcome us, that our sense of independence would be overcome by desire to live under your authority and in your kingdom. So flood our hearts with joy, Lord. Would you awaken faith where it doesn't exist, even this morning? Anybody who's listening to this, would you just awaken something? Would you stir what where faith already exists? Would you just build it up, make it stronger than, than where it started? And we ask, God, that you would do all that by the power of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I said at the beginning that joy only comes from God. That's what he said at the end of chapter 5. He said, Behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. He says in verse 19, Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. How can somebody enjoy something that has so much possibility to ruin our lives? The the grace of God gives people that that power. It, it only comes from him. Power to enjoy anything, whether it's accepting your lot or rejoicing in your, to, in your toil or having anything like wealth and possessions, and we all do have a lot of wealth and possessions. Um, it only comes from God. It only comes from the grace of God. So he backed into it last week, and now he's just going to start start in with it at the beginning of chapter 6. So he goes in. Look at the first two verses. In the first two verses, he's going to give you the theme of what he's been saying throughout this entire book, that joy only comes from God. He's just going to say it, and then he's going to spell out where joy doesn't come from. So joy only comes from God, and then he's going to, spell out in verses 3 through 6, it doesn't come from a long life. He's going to say in verses 7 through 9, it doesn't come from a big, large appetite. And he's going to say in verses 10 through 12, it doesn't come from independence. So happy Independence Day. (laughs) He's actually going to say there's an emptiness that comes from independence, spiritual independence, he means, from God. So let's look at him say joy only comes from God. He's been hammering this all book long, and now he says it again, right in the middle of the book. It's like, I don't want you to move beyond this. Oftentimes you read the first chapter of the book, and you pretty much get the summary of the book, and then the rest of it's just kind of uh, statements that increase your thoughts in the first chapter. Well, he comes right back in chapter 6 and says, kind of let me start all over, just in case you didn't hear me the first Five chapters. Let me say it again. He says in verse one, there is an evil that I've seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind and it lies heavy here today. 
You said, well, I came in here pretty light and kind of fluffy. You know, I'm thinking about the weekend and thinking about Fourth of July festivities. He says, there's a heaviness on you, whether you are aware of it or not. And here's the heaviness. He paints the picture of a man to whom God gives wealth and possessions and honor. And if you've lived long enough, you've experienced in some measure each one of those things. All of us are people who have possessions. All of us are people who have wealth. And compared to the rest of the world, we have great wealth. Enormous, extraordinary wealth, unlike uh, probably any people group in the history of the world. And we've also experienced honor. Many of us have had accolades and we've had accomplishments. We've had people speak wonderful things over us and to us. But look what he also says in verse 2. So that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. God says, the, the, the preacher says here that God could give all of these things, but if God doesn't give you alongside all of these things power to enjoy them, if you don't have the capacity to enjoy what you have from God, a stranger will enjoy them. It's a great tragedy. He says it's vanity. It's a, it's a waste of time. It's a waste of your affection. It's a waste of your toil. It's a waste of your energy, of all your planning, all your purposing in your life. It's all vanity when a stranger enjoys what you were supposed to enjoy. God gave you the wealth. He gave you the possessions. He gave you the honor. He gave you lacking nothing of all that you desired. And yet you don't enjoy what you have. He says it's vanity. He says it's a grievous evil. It's not just indifferent. It's not neutral. It's evil, he says. He says this is just flat out wrong. It's as evil as anything that you call evil. I mean, you could take that name and kind of slap it on a number of different uh, socially spectacular sins and say, you know, I know that to be grotesque and evil, but we often don't think not enjoying what God's given to me is evil? He says it is evil. He says it's a grievous evil. He says we have got to have from God the power to enjoy what he has given. And he's been hammering this hammer into the coffin of what we think joy comes from. And he's saying again and again, joy only comes from God. God is the source of all joy. We are so tempted by the lies of Satan and lies of the devil. It's the old trick. Just like Satan came to Adam and Eve in the garden. And he said, you know what? God's holding out on you. And that, that caught their attention. They were a captive audience to that. God must be holding out joy from me. There is something in that tree that I will experience joy and fullness from. If I take the bait of Satan, and it's an old trick. And you can hear him hissing in your ear today. So a number of things he's saying. If you pursue this, you'll get joy. If you live your life apart from God, you'll experience joy. Pursue it in that relationship. Pursue it in that toy. Pursue it in that job. Pursue it in that identity. And you'll experience joy. Well, the preacher says joy only comes from God. Now, he gives a, a shadowing of what the New Testament is going to come in later. And say, oh, 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 yes, joy only comes from God. The gospel, you could say, is God interrupting our story of darkness and sadness with an interruption of incredible joy. 
Think about it this way. You saw this last week. The shepherds are off by themselves. They're tending their sheep. They're minding their own business, so to speak, just like a lot of us. And the angels come to them one Christmas season. And the angels say to the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of what? Great joy. Great joy. I mean, their words pierce the darkness both of the night and of the spiritual darkness of their soul. And the angels say, there's joy coming. Incredible joy. Great joy. You've been longing for it. You might not even known that you wanted it. You may have thought it existed in all these other things. Well, I'm telling you, there's a baby that's born in Bethlehem. And the news that I'm giving to you is news of great joy. For he shall take away the sins of all his people. And it will be, this news will be for all people. This this savior of depression and darkness, this giver of joy comes and speaks joy to his people and to the world. He says things like this in John 15. These things I've spoken to you that my joy. Hello. Jesus has joy. And he says, I'm speaking these things to you so that my joy may be in you, in you, and that your joy may be. Full and abundant, not small or miserly. He's come to give us fullness of joy. It says in Hebrews 12, 2, the way that he secures our eternal joy is by going to the cross. But what was his motive in going to the cross? Hebrews 12, 2 is plain. It was for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus motivated by joy in God and motivated by your fullness of joy in God goes to the cross and then he dies. That's the kind of, that's the way that he brings the kingdom, not by killing with a sword, but by being killed by the sword. And then he dies and he's buried. And on the third day, listen to this, he is resurrected in the power of God. He's resurrected in the power of the Holy Spirit. The very one who embodied the spirit of joy is resurrected in the power of the Holy Spirit. Death could not hold down his life and his joy. His joy interrupts death and he ascends on high and he pours out the spirit of life and joy. That's what Romans 14 says the Holy Spirit is. The Spirit ushers in the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating, a matter of drinking. In other words, it's not a matter of all these religious things that you are taught. If you do this, you'll be a good person. If you do this, you'll be a moral person. If you don't do this, you sign this card, do this pilgrimage, don't say bad words, avoid R-rated movies, Those kinds of things. If you do all of those things, then you're in the kingdom. No, that's not the kingdom at all. The kingdom is not a matter of doing a bunch of religious things. But the kingdom is a righteousness placed over us because of what Jesus has done. And the life of God in us of peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what Romans 14 says. The Spirit of God ushers in a peace and a joy. It's the very presence of Jesus. Living in us. That's what the gospel is. God interrupting our story of sadness with incredible joy. That's what he's hammering in verses 1 through 2. He's giving an echo of what the apostles are going to say later. Well, note where joy doesn't come from. 
Look at verse 3 through 6. It doesn't come from this long life. And he's going to paint an incredible picture to help us understand that it doesn't come from a long life. He says, if a man fathers a hundred children, you're like, well, I know there's not joy in that because I got two and they don't, I get that. Um, well, he's talking about abundance. That was language back then for a lot of, a lot of abundance and long life. He says, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many. Note that. Many, many years. Lots of days. Lots of hours. And, and in his case, a lot of freedom to do whatever he wants to do. If he lives many years, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. So we don't know what he's talking about as far as the no burial. Maybe, you know, the person died at war. Or maybe he was, he was kind of had that wealthy story where a lot of the family members don't really care to attend the funeral. They just care to attend the, the reading of the will. He says, in, if that happens to you, uh, your life is, uh, is worse off than a stillborn child. He says, I say that a stillborn child is better off, better off than he. And he goes on, he says, for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. We live our whole lives trying to lift up our name and trying to make our name famous. He says it's better off if your name is, is never known in the case of a stillborn child. He says, moreover, it has, it has not seen the sun or known anything Yet it finds rest rather than he. He says the consumer, the, the, this rich person who toils after the world and after the promises of the world, finds no rest in the world. And at least the stillborn child, having seen nothing, having experienced nothing, and whose name and personality has not been known and enjoyed by anybody but God, who does enjoy that child and know that child. It's better off. The child is better off because the child finds rest. Look at verse verse 5. It finds rest. We saw last week that you can have a lot of things and find no rest at all. Lots of people have a, a, a lot of labor in their life, but their sleep escapes them whenever they put their head down on their pillows. Look at verse 12 of chapter 5. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. And he's not now he's not condemning if you have a lot of things, but if a lot of things have you, it's like this spiritual ulcer that doesn't allow you to sleep. We've all been there, you know, on the holidays. You might be there tonight after the festivities. You eat so much and you feasted so much you can't sleep. Well, if you live your life like that, if that becomes your lifestyle, sleep will escape you. And he says it's better, a stillborn child is better off than living a life like that. Because at least whatever the stillborn child has seen and has, has known, it knows it can rest. And you don't know that yet, that you can rest. We often think if I can just have a long enough life, I can find joy and enjoyment. So we do everything we can to prolong our lives, don't we? We'll, we'll buy any number of, of exercise equipment that usually just ends up uh, hanging, you know, places that we dump our clothes at night. You know what I'm saying? And it ends up on Craigslist. So that's the cycle of exercise equipment oftentimes. Um, 
or we'll, we'll try to find the best, you know, the best doctors and, and th- there's some merit in all these things. But joy does not come purely from having a long life. It's seeing God in your life. It's experiencing God in every day of your life. It's not comes from an abundance of years. It really doesn't. It comes from the fullness of God in any year that he gives you, in any day that he gives you. Jonathan Edwards said, said this about seeing and enjoying God. You hear this. He says, God is glorified. This is an old, old Puritan, so don't let the Puritan prose lose you. He says, God is glorified not only by his glory being seen. In other words, we've seen his glory. We've seen something glorious that he's created or something that he's given to us. He's not glorified not only by our seeing it, but by its being rejoiced in. In other words, our finding enjoyment in the thing. In other words, not just having, it's enjoying and seeing God in what we have. He says, when those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. So God is glorified when we see it. God is more glorified, he says, when we delight in what we see. And he's given us the power to enjoy what we see. One commentator says if you don't enjoy and you end up like like this man that's described in verses 3 through 6, he says it's better to miscarry at birth than to miscarry throughout life. That's a pretty shocking statement. He says you could waste your life in such a way that the, the stillborn child has experienced more of God than you have, even though you've lived a thousand years twice over. Look at verse 5. Moreover, it's not, it's never seen the son, the stillborn child, or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he, even though he should live a thousand years twice over. You're like, just give me one more year. The preacher says, God could give you a thousand years, and he could multiply that times two, and it doesn't matter. If you enjoy no good, your, your, your destination is the same. Do not all go to the one place. It does you no good. Those years offer you nothing if you don't enjoy and see God in those years. Look at verse 5. I thought this was kind of interesting. Just think of the language. Look at the, the words and the language of that. I mean, what's a modern day equivalent of, of, a, of a person that kind of lives in an unfulfilled sort of half-dead life who hate the sun, can never rest, and live hundreds of years in darkness? What about vampires? You probably never thought that he would ever mention vampires. Or you might never hear about vampires from this pulpit. But we know a lot about vampires. I did a little research yesterday on a whim. Do you know that since 1978, this is just for your useless information file, vampire movies have grossed over $2.4 billion at the box office. You probably know more about vampires than you ever imagined. 
They're often depicted in lots of different scenarios. Sometimes they're they're really scary, the Dracula kind, and then sometimes they kind of look like us and they just kind of walk in darkness and shadows and things like that. Uh, one of the most famous uh, books that was later made into a movie is uh, by an author named Anne Rice, who later became a Christian, I think, as of 1998, interested in learning more about her life. Uh, she wrote the, the book you may have read called Interview with a Vampire. Anybody re- ever read this book? Pretty popular book. It was a popular movie. Um, in this book, there's a conversation in which one of the older vampires is having a conversation with the, the little girl who has become a vampire. And uh, she, they're trying to give her reasons why it's good that you're a vampire. And, and this, this older vampire says, you see that old woman? That will never happen to you. You will never grow old and you will never die. And the little girl, Claudia, answers, and it means something else too, doesn't it? I shall never, ever grow up. She says, I I have this long life. I have a, a long life a thousand years twice over. But it profits me nothing because I can't enjoy growing up. And that's what the preacher's saying. God could give you a long life and your life could mimic and imitate a vampire-like consumer half-dead existence if God is not the main character of the story. Look what else it doesn't come from. It doesn't come from a big appetite. Oftentimes we think that it does. If I just have a big enough appetite, I'll have the, I'll have a full life. I'll, I'll be living large, the larger my appetite. Like maybe my problem is my desires just are, are, you know, too small or something and, and, uh, and they are too small if we're, if we're leaving God out of the equation. But sometimes we think, well, just, just more desires for the world and I'll have, uh, my desires satisfied. Well, look at verse seven through nine. He says, all the toil of man is for his mouth. Yet his appetite is not satisfied. He'll, he echoes what Paul will say later when he talks about people, uh, their, their God being their stomach. Their, their God being their stomach. I mean, that, that is no more uh, of a clear application of where we live today than that statement. All the toil of man is for his mouth. Let me just consume um, all that I have and just enjoy it on, on the palate of my mouth and not think about those who hunger and are, are outside of resources. He says, even though this happens, his appetite is not satisfied. He said, this is the greatest drag of all, con- of all time. When, when you just toil for things for your mouth and your appetite is not satisfied. He says, for what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? He says, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and the striving after wind. Wind. He says the poor man uh, conducts himself in a certain way, and the wealthy um, man conducts himself in a certain way. But what advantage has the wise man over the fool? There is no there is no advantage if God isn't on the scene. If you're trying to find fullness of life in in wisdom and in your appetite, your appetite is going to let you down. He says. He says, better is the sight of the eyes. In other words, it's better to be content in what you have 
than to let your appetite wander off into things that you can't have. He says that's vanity. It's a striving after emptiness to do that. You and I know what it feels like to have our appetites wander off. I read this one commentator where he said, our desires are often like a tramp, like a dog tramp, never content to stay at home. You ever have a dog like that? I had a dog like that. We bought this dog one time on a spontaneous purchase on a date. My wife talked me into buying this dog, and she'll she'll tell that to you. And uh, it was it was a regretful purchase. We found out later. The dog we named uh, Puddles. And Puddles was a cute dog. I mean, we named it that way because it kind of had this murky brown color to itself. It was this mutt dog. And uh, it just looked so cute and warm and cuddly. And we just thought, what a cute name to name it Puddles. We would later grow to regret that name as we would yell at this dog and holler at this dog to not run out under the fence where the ground was really soft with this big backyard. We were living out in the country, fenced in yard. We thought the, the dog was safe and always, you know, comfortable and warm. We, we provided for it, gave it great food. We nourished it, got all its shots, all that, all that kind of stuff. Um, but Puddles was never content to stay at home. And boy, that dog could not resist the siren call of the other dogs in the neighborhood. And so we would hear the dogs barking and we were in the kitchen and we could watch the scenario play out every single time. We'd start to hear the other dogs start to call for puddles. And puddles would would tear off and just start going for the fence where she would be able to quickly dig a hole. Unbelievable, uncanny ability to quickly dig a hole under the chain link fence and and get out every single time. We, We tried to solve it, couldn't solve it. So we're just trying to teach her obedience. Stay here, puddles. And so he would, she would tear off, and then I would jump out to the back porch, and I'd say, Puddles, stop. What are you doing? Stop what you're doing. You know, and Puddles would, would look back. And, you know, when, when you've had a dog like that, where the dog just kind of looks back, like you, it's almost, it's about to obey, and it would just take off. <laughs> Every single time. And we'd see Puddles 24 hours later, exhausted, tired, needing food. And uh, and never content to stay at home. She'd always come back, um, but uh, we later got rid of puddles. And I won't tell you why, but uh, we got rid of puddles. Uh, our hearts, the preacher says, is often like that dog. Never content to stay at home. Always wondering, is there something better beyond there? Just just thinking, you know, I'm not secure. I'm not safe. Or maybe I am, but there's just something else that's calling me. You ever feel that way about your job, your marriage, your family, your friendships? You ever lack contentment with what God's given to you? This is a verse in the Bible that says God's placed placed me in, in pleasant boundaries around me. But have they ever felt unpleasant to you? More like a, a fenced-in cage to you? And you just try to look over the cage and just wonder if there's something else out there? I mean, think about it this way. If God were to come to you today, every one of you, kind of like Oprah's favorite things, and offer every single one of you a brand new car. I mean, what if, if God were to say, here's a brand new car, and he 
showed you the keys to the car. You can just take the car and drive out today. He says, here's your choice. I'll give you a brand new car or I'll give you the ability to enjoy your old car. What would you choose? That's a tough question, isn't it? I wonder what I would choose. Hebrews 13 says, keep your life free from the love of money. And here's his logic. Why? How? Why? He says, be content with what you have. How? He says, because God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm the source of all joy, folks, he says. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. And the promises of the world do not stack up to what I offer to you in my presence of joy. So it doesn't come from a big appetite after all. Look at verses 10 through 12. This is how we'll close. Fullness of joy doesn't come from independence. It doesn't come from independence. He goes on to say, whatever has come to be has already been named. In other words, there's nothing new under the sun. There's no some successful accomplishment that you could ever do that somebody hasn't already done. Hello? Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one that is stronger than he. He says, he's really, what he's talking about in verse 10 is God. God is stronger than you. God has named things. God knows what you are. He knows how you are wired. He knows your desires. He knows your thoughts. He knows what's happened in the past. He knows what's happening right now in the present. He also knows what's happening in the future. And you and I are not able to dispute with his wisdom because we're not stronger than he is. We often think that we are. We often think that we can live an independent life free from God. And so we often shake our fists at God and we say, we want an answer for why this is in my life. I want it, I want it resolved right now. And oftentimes when we say, God, you better resolve this, we dispute with Him. And we recognize our own independence. That's the cry of an independent heart. If God were to give us an answer, would we trust Him? In the open question, would we trust them in the open loop? I can't handle that open loop, God. So we want to dispute with God. And the preacher says, if you dispute, you're just going to run up against one that is stronger than you, who wants your allegiance, who wants your dependence, and, and will not always give us answers for things that wouldn't serve us. And we can just bang our head against that all day long. But Deuteronomy 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us. In other words, there's a revealed will of God. It's right here. God has revealed His will to you, but there are secret things of God that He has not revealed. In those places, He says, Trust me. Trust me. Ecclesiastes 3, He he says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. In its time. There's some times when what's going on in our lives looks very, very ugly. 
And we have question marks all over the map. And it's okay to say that to God. God, I have questions. I do not understand what is going on right now. But when we try to move beyond that to this place of independence, we can start to dispute with God because we just want answers. Charles Spurgeon said, said this. He says, when you can't trace his hand, that's when you must learn to trust his heart. You might have come in here today and you're saying, I want to hear something, whether in the music or some counsel from a friend or from the sermon, where I can walk away today having better traced his hand over this disappointment in my life. The old preacher from the 19th century would say, don't try to do that. Trust his heart when you have those those questions. So where do you want control? Where do you want to be in control of your life? Sometimes you just want to get out of his authority and then I'll be free. No, you'll be a slave. Bob Dylan said it best. You got to serve somebody. And you'll either be a slave of God and find freedom there, or you'll be a slave of the world and find misery. Authority, finding yourself under the authority of God brings everlasting joy. So here's how we'll close. He, he ends this section asking two questions, two rhetorical questions. One's about the present, one's about the future. He says in verse 11, he says, the more words, the more vanity, and what advantage to man? Look at verse 12. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which passes like a shadow? So in other words, is there any meaning to life? He just throws the question out there so that the reader can ponder his question, can reach into the depths of his soul or her soul, and finally find that place where they're asking that question about the meaning of life. God interrupted my life as a senior in high school and I started to ask bigger questions than where's the next party. I started to ask bigger questions about what's God up to right now and where do I find my place in his story. So he asked this question about the present so that we would ask questions about our present. And then he asked questions about the future for who can tell man what will be after him under the sun. So in summary, is there meaning to life now and is there life to come? What's God up to now? Is there anything beyond the right now? And I'd like Jesus to answer that question for you. Jesus, the son of God, who came embodying joy, answers the first question and the second question, both from the book of John. If you're new to the Bible, if you're a new Christian, go and read the book of John. He said in John 10, regarding the present, the thief comes only. Note that word. Only. To steal, kill, and destroy. We often think, well, that's, that means he's going to take away stuff in our lives. He's after your faith in God. To steal your faith, kill your faith, destroy your faith. I came that they may have life. And have it abundantly. There is a future aspect to that. But he's talking about right now. I've come that you might be filled with my life. I'm alive right now to give you my life in you. 
and that you would have it abundantly, overflowing, fullness of life. And regarding the future, some of you are asking that question maybe. What about the future? What's beyond the right now? What's going to happen when I die? Jesus says later in chapter 14 of John, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Because he's God's son. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place, a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And he says, you know the way to the place that I'm going. And Thomas asked the question that you might be asking here today when he says, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? What, what's the path to this place? What's, what's, the, what's the road to the place? You might be coming from a religious background where you're saying, what do I have to sign? What pilgrimage do I need to do? What do I, what do I need to do? What's the path to the place? And Jesus tells you today, I am. A relationship with me, that's the path. I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says, I'm the place. I'm going to take you to be where I am and on the path to the place as well. So I asked you earlier, if God were to offer you a brand new car or the enjoyment of a brand new car, what would you choose? And uh, lest any of you were concerned that this was going to happen, I'm not Oprah, and I can't walk, you know, point around the room and say, you get a car, and you get a car, and you get a car, and you get a car. Um, here's what I can offer, and this is even better. God offers every single one of us today, because he's alive right now, new joy in your old car. Or maybe for you, it's new joy in an old friendship. A rekindling of that relationship. Or maybe it's new joy in an old marriage. You're like, well, we're okay. We're not fighting right now. (laughs) You know what? God wants to go beyond the we're okay. He wants to rekindle a this new and fresh romance in our marriage and in our in our friendship, a new fascination in old friends. Maybe it's your job. You're just discontent and you're lacking joy in your job. Let God put new joy in that old thing and watch what happens on Monday. Let's stand and we're going to close in prayer. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.